It's the Microcom Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Walling, and this week, I talk with Derek Reimer about how he bootstrapped his SaaS to a $128,000 exit. This is the first in a series of three YouTube videos that I recorded where I interviewed a founder, Derek, who had a six-figure exit, and then I interviewed Laura Roeder about her seven-figure exit, and then I interviewed Matt Wensing about his eight-figure SaaS exit. If you want to see the full visuals of this interview, click the link in our show notes or head to microconf.com slash YouTube. Do you want to reach tens of thousands of potential customers? Between our microconf events, startups for the rest of us, our YouTube channel, our email newsletter, and all the other ways we interact with our large and growing and loyal audience of startup founders. We have a lot of options for you to reach B2B SaaS founders with your product or service. Drop us an email at sponsors at microconf.com. And with that, let's dive into the episode. We know theoretically that software is incredibly scalable and you can build a lot of value with relatively small amount of, you know, capital invested and even even sometimes time and effort. Um, you know, CodeTree being a just a little kind of side project that I was hoping to maybe grow into something big one day and then ultimately that didn't turn out being its trajectory. I just remember finding it quite surreal that I was able to pull in six figures as a, you know, mid 20 year old just building some software on my laptop. <laughs> in, uh, you know, cafes uh, on the nights and weekends. And this week, we're trying something a bit different where we're going to deep dive into a process that most entrepreneurs hope to get to at some point, exiting their business. Before we dive in, I want to say thank you to our sponsor for this video, Quiet Light Brokerage. I'll tell you more about them in just a bit. And if you stick around till the end, you'll learn about the most luxurious thing Derek bought after he sold his company for six figures. Derek Reimer, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. What was CodeTree and who was it built for? So CodeTree was a project management application built on top of GitHub issues. So think similar to like Linear or Jira, but a bit simpler. Uh, specifically for software development teams that were on the smaller side and still wanted to use GitHub issues, but needed a little bit more structure. And specifically, what problem did it solve that was unsolved before you built it? So GitHub Issues has always been notoriously stripped down, uh, kind of intentionally as part of their product. But there's a lot of elements of GitHub Issues that work really smoothly if you kind of follow the GitHub workflow where you're opening pull requests and doing review on GitHub.com. So I think a lot of teams kind of start out that way using GitHub Issues as sort of lightweight um, issue tracking. Uh, but then, you know, if they need to do things like prioritize issues or want to see them in a Kanban view and all the number of things you might be able to do in a modern project management tool, GitHub at the time especially was just not innovating on those things. These days they have projects built in, but back in 2015, that didn't exist. So CodeTree sort of existed to fill in the gaps that GitHub was not building. So what were the basics of the business model? Maybe like the customer types, the size and your price points? Yeah, so I think I followed a pretty typical three or four tiers, $24, $49, dollars a month. And it was roughly based on number of projects and number of users on your team. Uh, so it wasn't exactly per user pricing, but it was tiered based on number of users. And I, I think most people were probably on the $24 a month plan, but then, you know, had a couple teams on the larger tiers as well. And how large did it get in terms of MRR? I think at its peak, we were just over $4,000 MRR. And what was your trigger to consider selling it? 
So at the time I was actually working with you on Drip, uh, CodeTree was very much a side project. It was just um, me getting my feet wet as an entrepreneur, kind of building my own SaaS on the side. Some might call it indie hacking <laughs> these days. And so I was building it and committing eight to 10 hours of nights and weekends on the project, but really at, at times felt quite stretched thin. Um, around the time that I decided to sell it, we were really starting to pick up steam with Drip. Things were starting to work. And I just felt like, you know, I couldn't really do do this app service, um, you know, while also focusing all my energy during the daytime on drip. So I knew that I was probably leaving opportunity on the table. There was probably growth to be had, but because I couldn't commit the time to it, I wanted to explore seeing if I could just cash out some of that value. Yeah. And so you have an idea that you want to sell it. You have this inkling, maybe it's time to exit from there. What was the process? What was your process for getting it onto the market? Yeah. So obviously I considered, you know, should I just try to sell this myself? But um, I didn't really give that too much thought because I think similar to like trying to sell your own house, there's so many things that I don't know how to do, <laughs> you know, and so much experience that I'm lacking versus a broker who this is their main thing. They are steeped in this. They have hopefully a network of buyers that they're already in contact with all the time. They know what valuation should look like. They know where we can push and, and, and say like, no, I think we're going to, we're going to hold fast to this price point that we want in these terms. And those are just all things that maybe I could have gotten that knowledge on my own, but it would have taken so much time and I wouldn't have felt confident even if I did try to do my own research. So for me, it was a pretty big no brainer just to go with a broker who would obviously take, you know, a cut of the ultimate purchase price but for me, that was well worth it. What did the broker do for that cut? Yeah, so I believe I started out with, with sort of a long questionnaire that was like, you know, digging deep into the internals of the business. Some of these questions you've already asked me, what does it do? Who's it for? What are the unit economics? Where are we getting customers from today? What's kind of the, the web analytics? What are the opportunities that I see? So it was a pretty in-depth um, questionnaire for me as the seller. And then they took that and produced a prospectus. It's just a document that includes kind of all the highlights and sort of pitches it um, you know, to the market on like a product that's up for sale. And then I think they started with shopping it around to some of their internal network of buyers, people who had expressed interest in buying SaaS products or had previously bought products. If I recall, we actually found our buyer through that private process. So I don't even know if it went fully on the public selling market. Throughout that process and even the negotiations and closing the deal, what kind of advice did the broker give you? Yeah, so the broker was was mostly there to help set expectations around, you know, this is what we think we can get for this on the market. And then when a prospect would come through, I think I spoke to maybe two or three different interested buyers. They would first vet the prospects for me and determine if it was going to be a good fit or not. And if they were, then um, they would arrange a call for us to talk and the broker would be present. So they, you know, the potential buyer can ask me questions. The broker can step in and, and sort of play. Play, uh, play the bad guy in the room sort of and, and help defend against questions that were maybe not appropriate for the right time or just, you know, something that we wanted to, to not disclose or whatever. So really was, was there as my sidekick to help me navigate the process, make sure I didn't screw up the negotiation side of things and uh, really just provide structure around the whole process. How did you decide on the price that you were going to list it at? And I'm curious, once it's sold, did it sell for that price more or less? 
So we kind of based it on a multiple of seller's discretionary earnings. So that's the money that the business brings in minus the core kind of operating costs, but not including what I'm paying myself as the founder. So it's sort of the potential amount of money that a new buyer could make um, if they were replacing me as the founder. And this, you know, was just sort of kind of the the prevailing way to value a, a, a lower priced SaaS product like this. And so I went ahead and went with that. And at the time, given market conditions, we felt like three and a half times SDE was a fair price to ask for. Um, I think the, the ultimate buyers, you know, pushed back on that a little bit, uh, asserting that it was maybe a bit on the high side. But I think that's exactly where I wanted to be, you know, right on the upper end of kind of what the market would support. Obviously, multiples have changed these days because three and a half is, I think it's like five to seven now, maybe for SaaS. Yeah. But then this is how things go because this was what, eight years ago? Yeah. Yeah. This was back in 2016, I think. Yeah. And so how long did it take to find a buyer and then how long to actually close once you found the buyer? It went shockingly fast. I think we listed it in mid-May, had a serious buyer in the pipeline by June 1st and kind of wrapped up negotiations in a couple of days and then closed due diligence by mid-June. So it was about a month end to end. And what was involved in the due diligence process? So once you've signed a letter of intent, you go into what they call DD, right? And they kind of dig through and ask a lot of questions. But from your perspective, what was involved in that process? Yeah, due diligence was pretty, I mean, it's kind of daunting at first because it involves usually a a really large spreadsheet with a bunch of questions. You know, a lot of those questions you need to try to back up with actual evidence. So it's like, what's your revenue? Okay, we we established that, now prove it. And so it's, you know, gaining access to Stripe accounts or or read-only views of Stripe accounts or bare metrics or whatever you're using to to verify your actual dollar figures, you know, copies of bank statements. Um, So just a lot of little things that, you know, is natural for the buyer to want to ensure that they're actually getting what you're um, what you're representing as the truth. Um, so it was it was kind of a lot of a lot of paperwork, a lot of kind of, you know, passwords to share and things like that to to make sure that um, that the buyer could get a good sense for the authenticity of the listing. Between the time that you signed the letter of intent and actually closed the deal, did the offer or the deal change in any way? So there were a couple of points where the, the buyers were wanting to push back on a few things. There were, if I recall, a few little discrepancies in some of the revenue reporting that we had versus actual cash. And I think it had to do mostly with annual sales of the product. So revenue that we collected for annual accounts that obviously the, the buyer wasn't going to get to participate in because the cash was already collected. There was some, some negotiation around normalizing for that. Um, and I think my broker actually did a pretty good job in advocating for keeping it simple and accounting for the fact that as time had passed during our negotiation, potentially I could have been able to sell for a little bit more because revenue had gone up a little bit. So sort of convinced the uh, the buyers to just let it be a wash. So there were a couple things like that in particular during due diligence that I was especially thankful to have a broker on my side who knew what they were doing because I probably would have, you know, um, had a little too much empathy for the buyer and, and collapsed under the, <laughs> the pressure a bit and, and capitulated some things. And so the broker was there to just sort of toe a hard line. He knew that, uh, you know, they were already kind of committed to the deal. So he knew where he could push just to, to keep it simple and not change the terms. And throughout the whole process, were there any big surprises that you remember? 
I think I was quite surprised how quickly uh, the process went from end to end. Um, that was probably the biggest thing. And I was also just um, quite surprised that a six-figure deal could come together this quickly. Like, I don't know, I just, you know, deals of this size that I'm aware of outside of stuff like this is like buying a house. And I know how laborious that process can be and how much of a big deal it is. And this felt just relatively quick and easy. Um, and that was just uh, very surprising to me. It sounds like it was a pretty quick and almost painless process, but do you recall what the most stressful part of the process was for you? Yeah, overall, it was pretty, pretty painless. But I think I was most stressed at the points where I needed to be involved in contact with the buyer, because, you know, I put a lot of pressure on myself to, you know, not screw this thing up. And even though I knew I had the support of my broker to, to kind of be there to help guard against making mistakes, negotiation is just not something that I had any experience with at the time. And so, you know, entering a phone call where I'm talking to the buyer and trying to, you know, cast a vision for what the product can be, um, I know I felt a lot of pressure um, in those conversations. Like I felt confident because I had good advice from my broker, but it still was was a bit stressful. I want you to take me to that moment when you looked at your bank balance, which I'm guessing was probably on your phone, and you saw this pretty large number for someone who, you know, for someone your age at the time and for someone who had never had like uh, an exit. I mean, this was your first exit. How did it feel? How did it make you feel to see that money in the bank account? Yeah, surreal is probably the the right way to describe it. You know, like we know theoretically that software is incredibly scalable and you can build a lot of value with relatively small amount of, you know, capital invested and even even sometimes time and effort. Um, you know, Coachry being a just a little kind of side project that I was hoping to maybe grow into something big one day and then ultimately that didn't turn out being its trajectory. I just remember finding it quite surreal that I was able to pull in six figures as a, you know, mid 20 year old just building some software on my laptop <laughs> in uh you know cafes uh on the nights and weekends and that it could actually materialize into you know a down payment on a house or a really really nice car you know you just start framing that amount of money in terms of things that that you know you can actually see in the real world and it's it's pretty mind-blowing yeah the ultimate purchase price we haven't really mentioned right it was one hundred and twenty-eight thousand dollars, and if you've never had, I'm mean, going to guess at that moment in your life, maybe you'd never had more than 10 grand, 20 grand in a bank account. And suddenly you see right. that number and you're like, wow, I didn't, I don't know about you. I always feel, I'm not sure I worked hard, hard enough to earn that much money, right? It's kind of like we live in the future in terms of, of SaaS multiples. Yeah, totally. And, and actually, I don't know if I answered your previous question, but that was what we came out asking for. So we basically got the price that we were asking for in the end after a little bit of back and forth on, on negotiating. In a minute, Derek's going to share the thing that he bought, the expensive trophy that he bought after selling CodeTree. But before we do that, I want to thank Quiet Light Brokerage. They are the sponsor for this video, and they have an impeccable reputation having been around for, I believe it's 15 years now, helping buyers, helping sellers sell their websites, their SaaS apps, their content sites, their e-commerce sites, WordPress plugins, the gamut of internet properties, and matching them up with willing buyers who are able to close deals. QuietLight has been around the microconf circles for years, and they are a trusted source in the brokerage space. To learn more about QuietLight, head to microconf.com slash sell. And now here's Derek telling us about the expensive thing he bought after selling CodeTree. 
So as it happens, um, I sold CodeTree shortly before we um, exited Drip as well together. But um, my main trophy from that time was a really nice espresso machine that uh, I have talked about a lot publicly because I just love it so much. <laughs> Some people buy Ferraris, you, sir, buy a manual. Well, like it's like a $1,500 espresso machine, rather like a really nice one. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. Well, Derek Reimer, thanks again, man. Thanks for joining me on the MicroConf YouTube channel. Thanks for having me and letting me relive this fun experience from the past. Indeed.